that's what I mean. It's like the butt rock of sci-fi, I feel like. But it's not that bad. I mean, it's a totally fine science fiction movie that has, you know, a lot of heart and it obviously has a lot of uh, ecological themes to it, um, of conservation and just, you know. Maybe it's Sam Worthington. That guy. Oh, yeah. He had his day, didn't he? He was it, the guest on on uh, Conan when I was on. He was like the, the celebrity uh, guest. Like, that's mm-hmm. how you know my episode of Conan that I was on was was like the, the throwaway episode because it was the group I was in, which, you know what, I'm so happy that we did it and it was a great opportunity for us to do that. But like, you know, it, the the guest was Sam Worthington and the world champion Whipcracker. Huh. Like that, <laughs> the, that was the Conan episode that we were on. I watched the dress rehearsal. I watched Conan like cutting sketches and from the green room. It was like, it was just such a weird, like, it was an episode that I was like, I guess we'll do this. Like, this is a slow day. Who can we get? And maybe there's more Conan. Maybe a lot of Conan episodes are like that. This is 2009? It just felt like a, uh, 2012. Oh. It was, he was promoting Man on Ledge, which oh, okay. was a terrible movie that I watched on an airplane and fell asleep during. It was, <laughs> I just remember him, his story, like, you know how, like, talk show hosts, will like get stories out of their their guests. His story was so manufactured and weird. Like I guess it could have been true, but he just told a story about how like like Conan was like, "So I heard you're getting lots of movie offers and they're all about like dressing up like green aliens instead of blue aliens." He's like and he's like, Sam Worthington is Australian. He's like, "It's like, yeah, mate, like oh, it's crazy. Like the first script I got after uh, after Avatar, I looked at it, I was like, "Oh man, I don't want to be green." I don't want to be a green CGI creature. And like, <laughs> then, and then just like kind of a, kind of just a pause and like, kind of like cool story. Anyway, let's bring out the world champion whip cracker. And this dude runs out and he's just like dressed like a cowboy and just cracking whips. Definitely has some form of Asperger's. Like he was very, very interesting watch. And he, he was really pro at what he did. He deserves everything he's practiced, but he was just a weird dude to be around. And I don't think Conan even, like they tried to get Conan to do a whip cracking thing. And I don't think he was able to do it. Uh, when the show actually happened, they might've cut in the dress rehearsal where he did do it. Like, it was just so weird. Um, it was just a weird episode. It was a weird day in general. Mm. What is it? Yeah. What was that? Like, what's the day entail when you're the musical guest on Conan? You roll up. Um, I don't, I mean like a film starting at like five or so, like four or five, I think. Okay. And you're in LA. So it's that late. I always considered it like a, I thought it would be like a morning afternoon kind of thing. Well, you, you have to get, I mean, it's a, this is just a day job and it's, it's unionized. So like these people have to be in and out at like certain hours. And I remember that about it. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just like people show up at right on at whatever time they're supposed to show up and get ready. And I remember after it was over, they just like, it was like a ghost town in there. And that's just, that's just the professional nature of the industry. Like you just think about like non-professional atmospheres and how people have to work long hours, but these people just did it. Um, and you show up and you load in whatever gear you need and you put it in the spots and you do your sound check and you, you get your, like, they have to like, you run through the song like two or three times before you actually get to do it. Like the camera crew has to figure out their blocking and they have to, you have to, they have tape off your spot on stage. Like our band was pretty static, so we couldn't, we weren't moving around at all. So it wasn't really hard. The cameras basically just recorded all their movements and they kind of plotted out where they were going to be jumping around. Um, we did our thing and like the, the taping actually happened. A lot of it was backstage, like, Mm. you know, just hanging out and waiting and they called us up for it. We did our thing. We went backstage and hung out. We gave Conan a book um, from, because Conan's really into, uh, he's into the Beatles. Yeah. Uh, like most people are. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he already had a copy of the book we gave him, but he had it in New York in like a storage locker or something like that. So it's like, oh, finally, I'm so glad I have a copy of this in LA. Um, it was the Beatles gear book. And because oh, cool. a friend of the band's wrote it and we, yeah, so we gave that to him. We shook his hand and he kind of went off. Um, he invited our band leader on stage for the end of the show. At, at, when they came back from commercial break, he invited her up. And then, yeah, that was it. We just walked out and, and you're done at like four o'clock. And then you just go back to the hotel and hang out and get dinner and maybe go in the pool. And then 
10 and 11 rolls around and you watch yourself on TV. Um, oh, you, we got to mix ourselves or like we got to go to the mix room. It's a little oh, trailer really? behind. Yeah. It's like a little, it's a little bit behind Conan's studio. So, um, like there's a little trailer where they do all the sound work and all the post work for the sound and they played back our, like the entire thing. They just have it available. It's just what a crazy operation. You know, you think how it's weird, like you and I sending files back and forth and like doing podcasts with other people and editing it projects and but this is just like, you know, we recorded in this one building and then we went out back into this trailer and they just had all the camera footage, all of the sound recordings just on this one computer. I'm like, how is this happening? Like, what is the infrastructure that is needed to go into this? And this is probably a relatively simple thing, but to me it was fascinating that they had the whole thing back there. And yeah, they basically played it back to us and they're like, okay, how much verb do you want? Because you're doing, they're just doing a Pro Tool session mm-hmm. on the audio from the thing and then it syncs up to the video and it was really cool. Like it was just, we had we got to mix our background harmonies and I don't, we didn't do any editing or anything like that. No, there's no tuning that goes into it. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, it was, it was a cool experience. I'm glad I did it. Um, I'm downloading it right very now great. so I can watch it later. Wait, you got it? Oh yeah. Dude, they took that off of YouTube so long. Where did you find it? Uh, the internet, man. Oh, damn. I, I'll clip you, out you your send bit me? and send it to you. Okay. Thank you. Um, because I thought it was gone forever. I honestly thought it was forever gone because Conan takes his clips off the air after like six or 12 months or something like that. Oh yeah. That's a shame. No, I'll put it up on YouTube too. Well, oh my God. That's so crazy. She's Julia will probably reach out to me when she sees that the clip goes back up again. Julia is the band leader. Um, but yeah, I, cause we, we just assumed that clip was gone for good cause we didn't get anything from it. You know, we didn't, I mean, you get, you get paid and then, yeah. <laughs> that's it yeah it is crazy that you know like that clip hasn't existed elsewhere before yeah it's the early 2010s that it's it's really hard to find um clips like you know there's there's musical performances that are in some circles considered (laughs) legendary and then they just don't exist online anymore and you can't find it It, it, it's crazy even if you if you even if you travel in shady circles on the internet it's hard to find certain episodes of talk shows which is a shame We've talked about that, the archiving, like the Letterman project that you described. Yeah, well, that's uh, by that one guy. That guy is a he's a hero. <laughs> I, right, I'm just so but glad that's, that that there's all not many heroes like that anymore. I know, you know, and it's is, even easier to do now. That guy tape recorded every single episode with physical tapes right. that he stored in his apartment. You could record any episode of any TV show with very little work. You could you could automate that, and that's what a lot of you know it people did automate that and it was for you know scene releases whereas scene torrent releases where you could download that episode and and watch it and a a lot of people did download and watch the episodes that way but they don't keep seeding them forever (laughs) because at the at the end of the day or at the end of the decade who really cares about that <laughs> one episode of Conan from 2012? Like probably not very with many Sam people. Worthington with as Sam guest. Worthington as guest. Maybe they'll but... dig it out when he um when when Avatar is he going to be in the Avatar sequels? He is, which is crazy. It, oh I mean, man, uh, talk about digging that reviving a, a corpse. You know, like has he done anything? Let's go back to IMDb. Let's bring <laughs> this podcast back to IMDb. I just want to say I'm looking through the guests in January of 2012. I'm looking at. Uh, a list of guests on Wikipedia for the Conan program. Every single guest has a blue link, a blue hyperlink to another Wikipedia page, except for Adam Winrich, the whip master from the episode that you were on. <laughs> oh, he was great. What a name. Oh. What a name he had. All right. So let's, let's see. He was in, he was in the Titan. I don't think that did very well. Cl- Clash of the Titans. No, just the Titan. It was a Netflix movie with Taylor Schilling, off of- Tom Wilkinson, and Sam Worthington. It's a science fiction thriller. All right, so he had his heyday was like the early 2010 like years, like so. Yeah, he had Terminator, Avatar, and Clash of the Titans all in like. Yeah, well, his, the next ten years of his life are all set up at this point. Mm. He did a lot, a lot of Call of Duty stuff. Oh, he does voice acting. That's interesting. I guess Avatar was an exercise in voice acting. I think the last one I saw was Sabotage in 2014. Hacksaw Ridge? That was a war movie, wasn't it? Yeah, I haven't seen that. 
Oh, that was the one with uh, Andrew Garfield, right? Yeah, where he carries people around mm -hmm. a lot. That's funny. <laughs> I mean, that's not that movie is not funny, but he was in the movie The Shack, which is interesting. Huh. The Shack. Yeah, that's based on that um, super super popular Christian novel. I actually read it. I thought the book was good. Um, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> but I did not see the movie. Interesting. So yeah, then everything he's got on his slate going forward he's in a movie called dreamland and then avatar two and three all right well i can't believe each avatar movie that hasn't come out yet already has its own wikipedia page that's absurd yeah yikes um what was i gonna say um is his hair real did you touch it uh no i didn't I didn't touch his hair, um, it, it, but I assume it's real. Um, oh, what I wanted to say was for the longest time, for the longest time that, that, that Conan bit, um, like that, that whole thing, it was only on one or two people's TiVo or like, what do you call it? Like whatever their, their streaming boxes were mm -hmm. not streaming boxes, like their cable boxes that stored their, what did you used to call that? It was just TiVo, yeah. but like, what was the generic term for DVR. it? DVR. Yes. It was their DVRs. And People, I would know because I would go for like a family's house and I'd be like, oh yeah, they took it off the end. Like, no, it's still on my DVR. Don't worry. Mom and dad recorded it and we haven't deleted it. And like, I just keep thinking about how like at some point, like they're going to be like, oh, we got to tape Shark Tank. Like what, what, oh man, the DVR is full. What should we get rid of? Oh, like Michael Nicholas's, uh, Michael Nicholas's performance. Like, that was years ago. Like, <laughs> it's fine. I don't, I made them in New York and they're, they're all Boston. I don't know why I did that. But, um, but yeah, like, Hmm. That's that's when it's going to get axed, and now you have brought it back from the dead. Resurrected, you've resurrected the Conan O'Brien episode with the world champ. You should watch the whip cracking sessions just to know how, what we were experiencing <laughs> that, and just how awkward it was. Because I think they kept a lot of it in where like Conan just couldn't do it, and Conan Conan just like was looking at the dude with like this weird. It, it you know how Conan is. He's like very sarcastic, and there's like. He's very uh, cutting and and cynical and it's, it's like, I guess he's kind of like a Letterman type where he just like he won't disrespect his guests but he'll definitely belittle them mm -hmm. a little bit you know he'll rib them about like how ridiculous they are yeah it has yeah it has to be somebody like super prestige to like for him to like actually show respect to them which is fine that's kind of his thing um, but yeah it was it was nice to to. It was a good experience. I'm happy I did it. Well, I'm, I'm bummed that you haven't mentioned that you got a apple whipped off your head by Adam Windridge. What? I did not. I know. That's what, I'm bummed. Uh, I'm, oh, you're bummed that that didn't happen. Okay, I thought you were like, we're, you're watching it. You're like, I see you. No, like I, I feel like if it would have happened, you would have mentioned something about being part of uh, the whip man's act, but you're not. So I'm already no, a little did you just the biggest, the, the dude just carried himself so well. Like he just, like he just, he walked into the room and he acted like he owned the place. It's like, I imagine like an animal control specialist would, you know, like, like someone just walking in and like, it's a super niche position, but they, they know their stuff. They're like very enthusiastic about it, but also trying to play it cool at the same time. And like, that's what this dude was. He was just like walking in just kind of like, yeah, well, this is like a whip and I'm just going to do this and that. And like, okay, what well, you got to do here if you want to do this. He just took himself very seriously and wanted to be mysterious at the same time too. It's such a interesting run of performers around that time. You got Wilco followed by Julia, then John Mulaney. The next night was, um, wasn't the next night, uh, Elizabeth Banks or something like that? Yeah. Well, yeah, she wasn't the musical performer. She was the guest, but the... Right, uh, John Mulaney was the stand-up guest. Oh wow, that was early. Yeah. It was he was still writing for SNL, wasn't Probably. he? And then they might be giants and Dale Earnhardt Jr. Jr. There was a very kind of a nerdy indie rock crowd coming through Conan at that time. Did you ever listen to the Spring Standards? No. They're a group. They're from Brooklyn. I think they're disbanded now. Um, but they. Uh, they did an episode earlier that I think the year during the year prior, like 2010, they were friends of Sam and I's mostly Sam's. Um, they're like roommates of our friend who then kind of integrated into our group, like Sam and I integrated into their group. And um, they had done Conan like very shortly. So they kind of gave me a rundown of what was going on or what would happen and how it went. Hmm. 
they're like friends with Aubrey Plaza who uh, yeah. is, was on Conan and was on the same episode that they were on. It was, it was cool. Um, but yeah, they, that was like the only other people I knew that were on. <laughs> it's crazy to go back through these. I, I love late night talk shows and I, I wish that more of them were available in, in the afterlife, you know, cause Letterman's a good example. Those are some really great bits and they're all the thing about talk shows. Is they're all moments in time. It's all like really relevant when it's all happening, but they're unique landmarks for people in their careers. And often it's at the very height of people's careers or sometimes at the at very low points of people's careers. So it's interesting to be able to go back and watch those things. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why uh, the powers that be won't let these things get wrapped up in Blu-ray box sets and redistributed on shelves. But I think it's a total shame that late night shows aren't available. Like at the very least, put them up online and leave them there. You should have an archive of these things because otherwise, what did you, what was it all for? Why did you have Letterman on the air for, you know, however many years and advertising dollars? Yeah. It's just, it just, it's a shame. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we're in a world now where you can place YouTube ads in anything, Mm -hmm. you know, like every YouTube video has ads going three or four times throughout it. And so, and that's fine because guess what? Episodes of, of these shows they're made for commercial breaks you already have right, a place that's to what i mean <laughs> well, that's what i'm saying is that like you have like it's not like the ads are out of date it's not just because like the advert it's not like the advertising money has dried up there's always going to be an ad placement for this i mean like look at hulu you know playing seinfeld or whatever you know it's like it's just there's always going to be ads to be placed in old tv so it's not like it's not going to be profitable to, to to host you know the the entire archive of the letterman show i can i so many tv enthusiasts would be so happy if that happened if like hulu just suddenly got every single letterman thing it's more about the preservation thing right yeah like the fact that like there's just no high quality versions of this i mean well some of them yeah i think in the case of you know nbc or tbs or whoever is hosting conan at the time that those exist they've got those on tapes it's not like they're throwing out tapes because they don't have the space anymore or re-recording over tapes because they're running out of, of a material. It, it's just, it hasn't been the case for that in a long time. This is all stored digitally somewhere. It's just whether or not they're willing to repurpose them and archive them in a way that's searchable and accessible to the public. Letterman's harder, obviously, because they didn't store those digitally, at least not until you know the last several years. But they're lucky that somebody did. <laughs> it's it, it's wild. I, I love late night TV. I don't watch it regularly, but I will binge watch it often. And it doesn't matter to me that the stuff isn't current anymore. It doesn't matter because I'm, it, it's not like I go to Letterman to get the news. You know, it, it's, it's commentary on the news or it's, it's commentary. It's context for, a movie that's come out or a band that's popular at the time. It's just a landmark. It's something that I think should exist in archives. And it's just sad that it doesn't. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I don't have the same feelings about late night that you do. Mm-hmm. Like I, like SNL has always been a big thing for me. Like I've, I've loved SNL since I was a kid. My dad started me on like the, the first season. Mm-hmm box sets that so i i had like i knew all the references that have ever been made to snl but besides that like i never really craved it like i watched the the what's the daily show when john stewart was on and i watched that religiously like every night that i could every single night for like four five six years straight and then i fell off um towards the middle of like Obama's second president, second term, mm-hmm. because I just felt like nothing was changing, mm. and like Stewart would go on and give like such such amazingly poignant jokes and monologues and segments. Like I remember, I, I feel like there was a turning point when the show segged from like like they they would do like those joke segments where they would go and meet like some quirky Midwest personality. Like I, the one that stuck out to me was like in the, like the year 2000 or whatever, 2001 when they went to find somebody who did astrology, which is just someone who reads like asp imprints or whatever. And like tells their, their 
you know, horoscope or something like that from that. Like that was a bit in from like 2000, 2000, like pre nine 11 daily show with John Stewart. And then post nine 11, John Stewart was just like, everything changed. Mm-hmm. And it's, and he had such great points and was such a, a great voice. But then it just, it just got to like, I just kept watching him make great points and point out the injustices of our, of America and, and the world and just felt like nothing was ever changing. And it was really a huge bummer to me. And I had to stop. Yeah. Like I, I think after he left, I, I, I watched a little bit of Trevor Noah and I was just like, it's really not happened. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I stayed away from a lot of the political Colbert type shows because it's, it was, it's commentary in the news and a lot of it is, you know, John Stewart, he's very smart. And I think we, I think we should have somebody doing that at all times. Somebody sort of keeping a watch and reminding people about how crazy these things are because it can get normalized so quickly and so easily. But yeah, I, I couldn't watch it every night for the same reason. And I think that's why I, I tuned into late night more because late night was a reprieve from everything like at the end of the night it's something to make you laugh before bed and and they always succeeded in doing that even when things went terribly wrong if the bit went awry if the you know the the stunt was broken like it it didn't matter because you had this guy who was able to just take any situation and laugh at it and whether it be you know conan or even Jay Leno or whoever it was, you've got these guys who are just going to laugh at whatever is going on. And I think that's also super necessary for people to have. And yeah, I don't know. I, I don't have like a, a, a strong preference towards whoever is current. <laughs> it's probably Jimmy Kimmel, honestly, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think there's a place for both of them. But for me, I grew up on late night and I, I will always miss the, the laughs that I would get on my tiny six inch television in my bedroom <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to, trying oh to turn my wires just right. So I can get a signal. Um, I had, um, I had a TV. It must've been from like 1989. And if you turned it on, whatever, I don't know what makes this happen in a, in a CRT TV, but like um, it, it, the image would basically just start like f- rotating, I guess on the screen not like it would just flicker, but like it was like the, the top became the bottom, like scrolling, I guess that it was scrolling from top from bottom to top of the screen and it would cycle and it would probably take like 20 minutes for the TV to warm up and for the TV <laughs> to stop the picture to stop rotating on the TV. And I, I mean, if I was, you know, more interested in the time, I probably would have looked up and try to figure out what was going on with it. But it was such a weird phenomenon that like Saturday nights, my brother and I would turn on the TV in our bedroom, like pull out the rabbit ears and cause it was cable, we didn't have cable and we were just using the airwaves, like the, the, what do you, the broadcast antenna, mm-hmm. it wasn't digital yet. So yeah. And we just wait for like 30 minutes and like 35 minutes into SNL, our TV would just finally have a picture that stopped. It was like barely crawling across the screen so we could see most of what we were watching. Mm-hmm. Just like a weird, a weird thing. I'm sure like old people, like really old people who like had the first TVs, which I also saw at the Museum of Moving Image in Queens, um, like with the mag, they put the magnifying glass in front of the small TVs so they could all watch <laughs> it together. You know, like, yeah, I don't know. Uh, My dad always said he had the first TV on his block and I thought that was, that's really something, you know, like imagine having the first TV or like the first computer on your block. Wow. That's pretty cool. They were, I think the old TVs still look pretty rad. They're so crazy. Like the designs used to be so crazy. And that was the thing is now it's flat screen now. So like, well, it's not even like you could say that like, oh yeah, well those are coming back. Like that's that, that weird ostentatious, like style of, of, of television, like that design will come. It's like, no, it's never, we're never going to have those big wood cabinets again. You know, like it's just, it's not something that's, it, it can't come back into vogue. It's not like a record player or anything. It's just like, TVs are meant to take up as little space as possible now mm-hmm. and give the highest resolution picture. So there's no point in putting a high definition screen in something that's going to take up like 10 times the amount of space. Yeah. Yeah. That's, 
I think that's fine though. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's not I'm, like I'm they okay make turntables the same anymore. Like turntables are a lot smaller also. It's a nostalgic thing, but it's slimmer in design. Well, a turntable has to be a certain size. Like it has to be big enough get, to fit the thing, but they're very thin these days. They can fit a lot into about an inch. That, that is true. I guess it doesn't have to be a lot anymore. Um, you, we both had a music night last week on Friday night. Oh, who'd you see? I saw Dave Bazan. Oh, that's right. Or Pedro the Lion, as he was billed at. Yeah. And you saw Julia I Michaels, saw Julia right? Michaels, yeah. Okay. That's cool. Uh, two very different shows, I feel very like. Very different shows. <laughs> so what, so Julia Michaels is a pop star, yeah. right? Yeah, she's a pop writer. She's been a pop writer for a long time, writing for, you know, uh, Britney Spears, Selena Gomez, um, you know, just a, a lot of, you know, so she's been writing for star power for a long time, but she's just kind of coming into her own career now. And, uh, and I've been enjoying watching her grow because I think her songs are always really good. They're super solid. She has a really cool, um, ear for melody and things. And she just, her last EP really caught me. It was just very, uh, open and honest pop music on subjects that you don't often hear about from people who write and perform at her caliber. So, um, I decided to actually go see her in concert cause I've never been to a pop show. I've never like I've I've been to pop shows, but I've never been to like a you know a top forty performers show. And she was right. performing at the House of Blues, which is manageable. It's, the tickets weren't really expensive or anything. This is her first headlining tour, so I figured, why not? This could be a cool moment in history. You know, down the line, I could really appreciate seeing somebody like yeah. Helen Michaels at her first headline. So it was awesome. It was great. Was it packed? It was absolutely packed. I've never, I've never been to a show at the house of blues with that many people. Um, I was surprised to see that it wasn't entirely girls in their teens. Um, a good bulk of it was. And then what is her, that's her demo, right? Yeah. And so like, what's the rest of it? Uh, the rest were either parents of those kids. Um, but there was, <laughs> there were a lot of college kids too. And they, they weren't all girls. There's a lot of guys. And I think that's probably not, it's probably not too different than somebody like Ariana Grande or Selena Gomez. But, um, like I said, I think she has this interesting, you know, universal appeal because she, she sings pop songs about mental health. So it's kind of a, it's a weird thing. She bills her, her shows as safe spaces. She even puts up like a little poster. It says, you know, this is a place where you can sing, dance, laugh without judgment as they're setting up her set. Um, her set was pretty cool. It was like an inflatable, uh, flower garden kind of thing she has a live band and they were super solid uh they have to be man they have to and be they are and they're so good you know they got all the choreography down and every song had its own you know arrangement and and thing they had uh they would do like drum lines with um with digital drum kits and stuff that was pretty neat and uh, she even did, th- this makes me so nervous these days. And, you know, looking around the House of Blues now, as opposed to the first time they went to House of Blues about 10 years ago, they've got all these like emergency lights up on the walls now that you don't really notice unless you're looking. But they're the mm-hmm. they're the kind of lights that get very bright very quickly in the case of, case of some sort of emergency. Um, so there's all these you know, extra security precautions at shows like these now, which is fine. And I'm totally down with it. And, uh, the, yeah. the guy at the door who was looking at my key ring funny didn't, didn't bother me at all. <laughs> um, but when Julia Michael steps down from the stage and s- like performs a, a, a song in the middle of a very, very packed crowd, that makes me nervous. It makes me nervous for her. It makes me nervous for the one security guy that she has there with her. Um, mm. but it was nice. It was, it was a cool moment. There were, it was an interesting show, but it was a lot of fun. That is... I'm watching a video of her performing now. She's got dancers. Yeah. It's... Yeah, the live band. I I, I love the live band mm-hmm. on stage with a pop act. It just makes so much sense. Oh, yeah. It, to see that. It's the, you know, the, the it interplay. It so much energy. It really does. You, 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 to have, like, a, a live drum kit on stage. Exactly. Like, the drums alone. When I saw the drum kit get unveiled, I was like, oh, sweet. Like, that, I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting, you know, a digital backing track with maybe a guitarist, maybe a bassist. But I, I didn't mm. expect the full arrangement that she had. I mean, she had a keyboardist, she had a bassist, she had a guitarist, and they were all super solid. And they all, they all seemed, like, genuinely into what they were doing, too, which is, is interesting. And I'm sure it's, like, a 
an odd job to get. Like I imagine these people all probably came from, um, you know, bands not on like yours or where they just, they've been playing their own kind of music for a long time. And then somehow they stumble into this opportunity where they can start playing for Julia Michaels. Like I have been, I I've known a couple session musicians and like backing band guys and who have talked about those kind of huge pop shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just about like what, like a lot of times they'll record like a live set mm-hmm. and they'll, that what you're hearing is like the recording that happened of their live set. Cause those sets are super tight mm-hmm. and they'll just be playing that as like backing tracks. And the band is just there to p- purely if something goes wrong, like it, it, with the backing <laughs> tracks, like they're playing along, but like their, their tracks will not be faded in unless something goes horribly wrong. Right. I mean, it's like, it's like the Super Bowl thing with the Chili Peppers many, many years ago when they realized that like nobody was actually plugged in on stage and there was no wireless packs happening. <laughs> so they were just kind of like, how is this happening? And the Chili Peppers had to come out and be like, no, no like, we recorded this. This is the Super Bowl. This is like the biggest ticket of the year for a band. This is like, I, I mean, it's like the Super Bowl of, <laughs> of musicians. Like it's, it's, and so like, there's no room for something going wrong. Yeah. So it's just way easier for them to play it, to just record it. Like they're like, I think their their thing was just like, listen, we played this live in a studio. What you're hearing is actually us playing it. And what you're seeing us is us on stage playing it. Mm-hmm. But the disconnect there is only like what you what you think if you approve of that or if you dis- disapprove of mm-hmm. that. Like that's that's your call. But like we're having fun on stage. You're listening to something that's real. So in the moment it's not all real, but like it is. Just it's it's what it had to be for to be on the Super Bowl. Yeah. And that's what a lot of these acts are. Like these tickets aren't cheap. I don't know how much Julia Michaels was, but like, it, but like seeing a Britney Spears show back at like the height of her thing, it was like, it was huge. Mm-hmm. It, it was it, you're the hundred dollars a ticket or whatever. Yeah, and like, if something that. went wrong during that, like to demand that kind of money to see a pop act, like it has to be flawless. It has to be transport you on like if you want if this pop artist wants to their brand to be they can't be like the bad pop artist live the pop artist that you shouldn't see mm-hmm. live it has to be the pop artist that like blew your mind where everything went perfect and the set was amazing and the music was excellent it's all it's all crazy well, i mean think um, about like when the beatles came to the states and they're playing at the hollywood bowl you know they can't mm-hmm. hear themselves the people on the stage like in the crowd can't even hear what they're playing which is insane you're going to see the beatles not just be in the same arena as the beatles so when you have these modern groups that are playing the the super bowl halftime show that's pretty it's like the closest equivalent that you can get these days and if you were in the crowd of the super bowl and one of the audio packs died or got unplugged or something that would be a terrible experience and you wouldn't enjoy that so why not Mm. eliminate all all of the you know possibilities for error that you possibly can and just give them the show that they want they want a show they don't they're not looking for right perfection in the the most purest form. They they just they want to see something good. And when you're in the crowd, it's not like you don't know that they don't have their wireless packs on. You only find that out when you get on Twitter later that evening. Yeah. <clears throat> and when somebody's yeah, it just it's fun to watch. Yeah, yeah, it's just uh it's a weird yeah, thing. So anyway, my show yeah, I, I want to know my show was very live. Well, yeah, it's, I mean, it was this is the first time I think I saw him as Pedro, um, probably last year or the year before, maybe mm-hmm. like right when he had announced that he was, it was him again, like that he, they're taking the moniker of Pedro or maybe I caught him the last time he was Dave Bazan, I think. So at like rough trade. What is the difference between the projects? There is none. Um, which is what he's just trying to tell, but like some people have questions. So he, um, he formed Pedro the Lion when he was like 18 and it was like i guess it was dubbed in emo like early emo christian rock though at the same time like had a very heavy christian element to it um you know kind of like a doubting christian kind of thing mm-hmm. uh challenging but like also singing about god and and whatever and but also just i mean in general just writing some really really solid songs like these these are my favorite songwriter of all time and the fact that he wrote about christian topics didn't really matter to me like i was not a i'm not a christian you know like it's not not a crazy thing um but yeah just great music um 
and not exclusively about Christian stuff either. It's just, you know, he wrote like a concept album about like politics and shit like that. It's, it's, it's wild, but he wrote his Pedro for the longest time. And then he felt like the confines of the band creeping in because he was writing everything and recording a lot of it too. And the more he added, like he, he started to get like members that would stick around for one or two albums and, and starting to feel, form real bonds. But then, you know, the idea of control comes up and he put out an album called control. Um, but it wasn't, I don't know if it was exactly about, that it was about the industry and and america and love and stuff just some oh man that's my favorite record of his but it was still under pedro and he just shortly after um he disbanded it because it was just like it was too much to try and please everybody and he put out this album called the under his own name david bazan called the fewer moving parts ep and it was just like the first song is just about like um well, the first time was about pitchfork.com, which you might like. Um, the second one was about breaking up the band and like why he had to do it. And he's just like, fewer moving parts means fewer broken pieces. And, th- you know, I covered that song for a long time after my high school band broke up at, when I was playing out. And like, it's just something that really resonated with me. Um, and I think he did some of his best songwriting as a solo artist. But towards the end like of that chunk of his career, which only ended two years ago, what he was just like kind of realizing that he didn't like playing alone anymore. Um, he was writing a new record and he's like, this feels like how it used to be when I was in Pedro, when we called it Pedro the lion. And he was very honest about it. The first time I saw him and he, he said he was playing as Pedro again. And he, cause they had, he was playing, he was touring as David Bazan and he said that he's like, Oh, so like someone asked him cause he does a Q and a like two or three points in a set. He'll do a Q and a cause the shows are small enough for that. And, um, he he basically just someone asked him, like i heard you're doing a page reunion gig like why are you doing that and he's like well i mean I, I it's the festival you know it's like a festival thing and you know i i wanted to sign on and play it because they asked me to and then my agent said that i could make twice as much if i called it page the lion so <laughs> i just because you know the revival thing yeah. works uh the get up kids and and what are you the starting line yeah Somebody said they get back together like every five years or they something They do. Like that. I just got just... my tickets for their show later this year. Yeah. And they're the most expensive tickets I bought all year. Damn. How much were they, if you don't mind me uh, asking? They were like 35 apiece. Yeah, that's, uh, that's fun. So Julia was cheaper then? Yeah, for sure. That's crazy. Yeah. So that's how you know she's a real up-and-comer, is that <laughs> if she's, she's still trying to... Like, I bet they... I also bet they kind of padded those things. I bet they had a lot of giveaways on, like, local radio stations and colleges and stuff. Oh, yeah, I'm when sure. When you mentioned that there's, like, college kids coming and stuff. Yeah, I'm sure there's that element to it. With the starting line, the, the draw for me, um, and the only reason that I actually paid that much for these tickets is because they're, they've promised, like, a storytelling aspect to it. So they're going to they're oh. gonna do songs, and they're also going to tell stories about the history of the band, which I'm really looking forward to, to seeing and hopefully bootlegging so I can listen to that in the future because those are cool. Those are cool opportunities yeah. to, to hear things that may not have been told in alternative press, oral histories and whatnot over the course of these last 20 years. That's crazy. But, uh, but yeah, so so Dave Bazan, he's, he, he's back to playing as Pitch of the Lion, and that's who you saw. Yeah, like he did those those couple reunion shows, like those one-offs, and then realized like, oh, well, I'm about to embark. He's like, he's planning something big where he's doing like a five-album arc, like one album a year for five years or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, he put out like three or four albums as himself. He did his, uh, curse your branches, strange negotiations, Blanco. He put out, uh, care. And it was like one of his last ones. And in the middle of that, he put out like two or three live ones. Um, one was like a string quartet thing where he just took all of his music since Pedro and just played it with a string quartet. Mm-hmm really fantastic stuff and just crazy output from him while doing those. He like pioneered the living room tour thing. Um, and has a doc, he just had a documentary premiere at South by Southwest, which I guess he has mixed feelings about, but he seemed like when somebody asked him about it at the show, he's pretty on board with it. Now he's like, at at certain point in production, you're kind of just like, why are we making a documentary about me? Mm -hmm. Like, who's this going to help? And then he, he's come around, he said to it, which is kind of interesting. Because he saw, he agreed to do it, and then I guess had some misgivings about it halfway through the project, and now it's premiered and it's over, and that's it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was really great because he's he plays as a three piece, which is like my favorite thing to watch. I I love playing as a three piece, and I, I love watching him as a three piece because I've seen him in so many different forms. I've seen him solo. This is probably like the ninth or tenth time I've seen wow. him. 
Yeah, like I, I always try and check him out. I didn't catch him the first time he came around as Pedro because the album wasn't out yet. And um, I had and I'd just seen him play as Dave Bazan with the same band. So I was like, I don't need to see him twice in the same year with the same band, just with a different name. Like, it doesn't matter. And uh, I got to see him play the whole new record pretty much. He went front to back with that. While squeezing in old Pedro songs and old solo songs too. And it, he just always, like, I saw him with like a seven-piece band the first time I saw him. Uh, and it was just, it was so excellent. Um, because it was just to the, it was exactly to the record. He played the record and it was so full and huge. And the last time I saw him before this was as a three piece, the first time with this band as a three piece. And he just rearranged all the songs that I had grown up with and, and seen him play with a seven piece. And it's just so fascinating to hear all these different takes. And like, he's just, he's rewriting these songs. Like the melodies are there, but like there's certain hits that he'll hit with a three piece that he wouldn't hit with a seven piece. Mm. It's just like a really I, watching an artist that many times live is just so amazing to see the different variations of their band and like the the way that they arrange. It's just a true testament to how talented he is, really. Huh. Um, yeah. I, I yeah. I mean, like I think the first or second time I saw him was at the Iron Horse in Northampton. Mm-hmm. Um, the, my band leader that I referenced earlier with the Conan talk, like she and I were touring as a two piece. And we were playing at the Iron Horse in Northampton, and she, we had, there were two shows that night. There was an early show, and when I, when we got the tour schedule, I looked, and I saw Dave was playing the late show, and it was like, I was like, oh my god, this is like the most perfect thing in the world. And normally after a show, like, we, we just want to get in the car and get to the hotel, because um, we're, it was a pretty rigorous tour, it was like every day for like 15 days or so, which is not like a long or rigorous tour for a lot of bands, but like for us it was, because, you know, Julius didn't play out too much. Um, at that time, you know, we were just kicking, getting it started and, and we showed up and I was like, Hey, Julia, like there's this, there's this guy playing after us, um, at the late show, same Dave is He's my favorite songwriter of all time. I feel like it would be insane if we didn't stop and like, just take time to watch him. And I did. And we, we did like, we sold out the show at the iron horse that night. Like Julia sold it out. And then Dave's show was like, I think it was like an 120 cap venue and like maybe like there was 50 people there for Dave's show. Like it and everybody, cause like it was a two level venue and we, and Dave's crowd was able to just huddle around the stage at, it was like a sit down kind of restaurant joint. And it was just like so intimate and magical. And he was first time seeing him solo and he covered, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the song flirted with you all my life. No, not um, really. by Vic Chestnut. I you you should definitely listen to it, but also listen to Dave Bazan's version of it because it's devastating. Like it, and I remember that was Julia's first exposure to Bazan, and and I was nervous because I was asking. I felt like it was a huge ask, being like, "Listen, can we stay out later than we wanted to to see this guy?" It would mean a lot to me. And um, we we waited around at the end of the set, and then like cause he he sits around and shoots the shit with everybody afterwards. And I remember just waiting and waiting and waiting and, and having to like force myself out of my shell and walk up to him and be like, because everybody's waiting for me to leave. Like Mike, we have to go. Like <laughs> we have a, we have like a two hour drive ahead yeah. of us before we have to get to Philadelphia or wherever. And um, I just walked up to him, like interrupted whatever religious conversation he was having with the people <laughs> around him. Cause, because the thing is that he retained all of his religious fans. I, I didn't mention this before, but like when he went solo, he had like a crisis of faith and was just like, he, he wrote a whole album about how essentially he stopped believing in God and whatever. And for me, it was really, it was eye-opening too. It was like a very important part of my learning, like learning about myself as what I thought it was. I was a Christian, but ended up not being. Um and yeah, like, and so he retained his fans. And so people used to just grill him about Bible verses and stuff. And he's written songs about it, um, about just the fact that people still just want to talk to him about the word and like the, the Bible and, and Jesus and, and being saved and, and, uh, what's it called? Like, um, just the hardcore, you know, uh, what do you call the, (laughs) the Christians that like go out the evangelists, like, you know, just like, that idea of, of Christianity. And so I, I broke through like those, like a group of like three dudes surrounding him talking about scripture or something. And I was like, Hey Dave, um, we played the early show tonight and, um, I just thought it was amazing. Like that we were able to get to see you 
Like, I don't think I gushed like too hard to be like, you're my favorite songwriter <laughs> of all time. And you happened to be playing the late show while we were playing the early show. Like, I didn't get that far into it, but I was like, I just think it was very fortunate, like that we got to see you tonight. And uh, I'm so happy. And he's like, oh, awesome, man. Drive safe. And I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> and then I just walked away. And he's like super accessible. Like in those years, like Julia is like, um, Bob, Dave's manager, um, puts together all her living room shows now. Um, and, and like, and she's had like dinner. She's gone to Dave's house and hung out with him and gone and gotten food with him and like met his family. Like, like, yeah, like it's, it's a great like, uh, connection that happened. That was right when I stopped playing with her too, is when, when like she was meeting with Bob for the first time and like, that was like the tour that I dropped. Like at the end of it, I was like, this is my last tour. I have to go get health insurance now. (laughs) Um, but yeah, it was very, it was weird timing. Cause like, it seems like the, like the sort of, it, it seemed like if I, if I was an opportunistic person, that would have been the opportunity to jump on. It's like, wow, you can get to be closer to your favorite artist of all time. Nah, man, don't meet your heroes. Right. Well, I mean, I've, I've met him and, and, you know, I haven't spent time with yeah. him, uh, but like, it, you know, it's fun. I, I, I was wearing a backpack to the show the other night. It was at music hall of Williamsburg and, I was coming from, I had an MRI beforehand, <laughs> like on my knee. Um, so I, I got out late from the MRI and walked in right as the opener was finishing up. And I, I was like, oh, I'm wearing a backpack because I got all my work stuff and I have my, like, just all my jacket I stuffed in there. So I'm not going to try and make my way into the crowd. I'll just stand back by the sound booth. And I stood back by the sound booth and I turned to my left, like Dave standing right next to me, like six inches from me, just like laughing at something the opener is saying. And I'm like, oh, man not the time to talk to anybody <laughs> or say hi. <laughs> hey, do you remember me from like seven or eight years ago when you played the iron horse? Someone did mention a show that he played. Mm-hmm. Someone mentioned a show and he knew the exact day, um, and time of year and day of the week that it was hmm. that the show, the dude was referencing. It was someplace in Texas. That's funny. He had a chance to see, well, I think it was also because of the chance he was, it was, might've been South by Southwest or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he had the chance to see arcade fire for the, for the, there was the last time they were ever going to play a small venue, like a 150 cap venue or something like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe even smaller. He said that he said smaller than music hall of Williamsburg. So it must've been like a 50, 60 cap. And, um, he said he, he missed the opportunity to see arcade fire the last time <laughs> that they were going to do that right before they exploded. Yeah. It's funny. That's done. And, uh, yeah. And yeah, but it was so weird. It's a very photographic memory. He, I mean, he, he's brilliant. Yeah. So like, it's, it's, I don't know. It's but crazy yeah, to look I, like I'm looking at the, the personnel for, for Petra Line and all the people that have you know played and worked with him over the years, and the just the list like, of people in here is crazy. Yeah, I mean, you got Nick Peterson from Fleet Foxes. I think you got there's like three people who played with Fleet Foxes that played with him in his early years or later years. Ben Gibbard. Well, did you see that he's? Um, it's it's nuts. Yeah, Ben was the original, I think, bassist for Pedro Lion. Hmm. The guy and the guy who mastered my. Uh, first EP was T.W. Walsh, um, who played with him uh, in the the Achilles heel era of Pedro. Is that Tim Walsh and yep, yeah, Timothy Timothy William Walsh. Yep, he, he played in headphones with him. Yeah, and in Low Tom as well. Huh. Uh, headphones is a great record. Um, but yeah, he's he, he's just like a really friggin' cool. Uh, just person that just has so many people surrounding him in his periphery. Like it was just a great time for music in the, in like the Northwest, uh, the Pacific Northwest that is. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it just the amount of people that came out of it and Tim, Tim, like TW mastered my, my first record. And like, he's fully aware that like most people that reach out to him for mastering, like are just coming to him because of his work with Pedro, <laughs> even though that uh, that's such a little piece of his career. There was a thing that happened. Like, um, TW went out and, um, he went out and he, he does solo records every couple of years. And he went out to Washington to uh, just like play a couple solo shows, but he drafted Ben Gibbard and Dave Bazan. Like imagine just playing a small, small club gig, you know, like like 30 cap, 40 cap club and having like Ben Gibbard show up and play guitar or whatever, you know, for <laughs> this guy who is just like, does not have a huge draw. Like he played New York city and he drew like maybe 30 people, 35 people, which is great. He's very cynical. I follow him on Twitter and he's kind of quieted down recently. Cause I think he realized like how much of a drag he was, <laughs> but, um, 
I don't know. But he sells shirts uh, that that have a page of the Lion Record that is just, uh, I believe in, uh, I trust in T. William Walsh and I'm not afraid to die with a Pedro. <laughs> it, was, it was this song called Bands with Managers, which is great. And it was just about like, you know, like bands, like pop punk bands getting famous while Pedro the Lion was just kind of like just in a van about to van flip. <laughs> and he's and it's like, a, like the peace day bazan made one night when he was just like touring with tw and was just like listen i trust him and i'm not afraid to die so like i can just go to sleep in the van it's fine that's and cool yeah so he's so tw just sells t-shirts with that on there <laughs> that's good yeah that, that yeah. was a, that was a cool era like i mean ben gibbard used to play with a bunch of bands and, and everybody played with each other's bands if you look at you know the the death cab harvey danger long winters group of bar suck bands they all played for each other at some point john roderick played mm-hmm. with harvey danger for years and then sean nelson played with the long winters for years ben gibbard would fill in for both bands like it's crazy you got the front men of these you know pretty popular indie rock acts and they're just like yeah i'll i'll fill in on on guitar for a couple dates no big deal (laughs) does anybody you know um did they because i mean like imagine like your local band scene and just like finding out like ben gibber just like is the flower like the tree that grows in that like mess of weeds or whatever Mm. like it's such a weird like a like an incestual scene and that made like is anybody in your scene in the ohio scene did anybody turn into anybody there hmm Are, are you saying like who who from my scene maybe like yeah like blossomed the, who did the you furthest? see as like the local vfw that turned into a star did you see <sighs> anybody like that um i mean nothing's popping immediately to mind so I, mm-hmm. i'd say i'd say not i think that everybody in my scene has had a, a pretty familiar level of success um there there are a lot of ohio bands that have done pretty well and kind of like gone on to be bigger but they're not generally from the cleave like the akron cleveland pop punk scene which is what i sort of aligned myself with for a long time they they they're from like toledo or cincinnati or um and different scenes within the state so now i i don't i don't think that there's anybody that like really glowed up so to speak for for you though, would it would you say it was like your bandmates from Spring Personality when they went on to Venetia Fair? <laughs> no, I, I it's like American Authors. Oh, like um those yeah. those dudes played as like the Blue Pages when I, we used to play with them when we were younger. I think actually Mike might have put got me in touch with those guys. And, I interviewed them. Yeah, yeah. I I never did anything with that interview. I should release that. I'm thinking about putting out a, a podcast should. feed of just old interviews that I never did anything with. I remember after that, you know, the American authors is that song, like the first day of my life, like that, that's in like, just a perfect commercial pop, you know, like they were a pop punk band and then there's like, Oh, let's play banjos now. And then they just made a million dollars. And I remember Ben texted him and was just like, I think he just said like a million or like something like that. And the, and the dude was like, yeah, like it's just the blue pages, man. Yeah. That's what they were. The blue pages. And then another surprising one, which I was discussing with Ben um, when I was back home a couple weekends ago, was um, Ice Nine Kills. Mm. Do you, are you familiar with them? Unfortunately, unfortunately, yeah. Some people have that opinion of them, <laughs> and I, I don't like their music. And but like Spencer Sharnas, he's the, he's the lead singer of Ice Nine Kills. He, I mean, he, we we grew up in the same hometown, and. Mm we played shows together. Um, we complimented one another, like verbally, not like, not like we weren't pieces of a puzzle to fit together, Hmm. (laughs) but like, but like we, we saw each other and, and they were a ska band when they started and Spencer just knew exactly what he wanted to be. He wanted to be a front man of a rock band. And he was the one that just made it. Like he, Hmm. he kept doing it and he, you know, they're headlining, they're getting like top, not top 40, but like they're getting major, like they're getting charting, they're charting their new album and packing their house when they're headlining tours and stuff like that. They built a brand. It's like very much like, and like end of warp tour type music, you know, like it's changed a lot since like we, we had, I don't know if I still have their old demos 
I know you would like him. Even if you're not an Ice Nine Kills fan, you would have been an Ice Nine fan. <laughs> it was just like really happy pop punk. It's probably somewhere on those MySpace archives that popped up. But um, man, they they it's just like watching like them play like bar mitzvahs and you know like <laughs> YMCA's, and now they're just like packing houses. It was just like it's just such a weird thing to to actually watch. Like this dude, this is a dude that did it. He's not like every, he's not like Conan level success or like American authors, even level success. They're mm-hmm. not playing stadiums, but they, he's probably as close to where he wanted to end up. You know, if he wanted to end up as like Kings of Leon, he probably could have, if he wanted to make that kind of music, but instead he, he just chose, like, he's like, I guess he could pivot. He's, but I mean, he's, he's pretty but young. Like, like he's got a, I'm sure he has has some life yeah. left on that career where he could he could change yeah, it up. He's probably like 35, I think, or something yeah. like that. I mean, Kings of um, Leon didn't make it big until they were in their late 30s, maybe 40s. No, they, no, no yeah. I, they were in like their late 20s when only by the night, like oh, they they broke with like a high shake heartbreak and all that shit. Like, but like only by the night, like cemented them as like a stadium rock band. I think. Hmm. I don't know. Like, I think they they cut their teeth in England. Is what it was, but like. They definitely broke when they were really young guys. Like they they were pulled out of high school to sign a record deal. They pulled their the cousin. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so that that's just those are the two that come to mind when I think of it. Well, that's I mean that's it's cool to see people in your scene do well, but it's always strange when it's it's maybe not the people that you'd expect. Like they they they're probably not your favorite band, right? They were, those weren't like the ice nine kills. Yeah. Like ice. God, nine, no, no, yeah, they weren't, they weren't like your band in the, the area. And that's, what's always like hard to see. It's like when, when bands grow up and, and they do really well and it's nice. You want to be supportive of them, but man, you really wish that runaway brother would have been the big hit or, you know, whatever it happens to be. But I think that a lot of that just comes down to the, um, you just want to keep rooting for the underdog. Like if your favorite band glowed up that way, it would you would be there on the ground floor, which is a cool feeling. But also, they're not your band anymore, so there's there are neg- negative feelings that come along with that as well. I just I, I think about people who played with people that I I know people who have played with bands that made it huge. For example, I know a guy who used to play concerts with the 1975 back in the day when they were still playing Coed and Cambria covers and Fall Out Boy covers. <laughs> um, and it's, it just has to be wild to be somebody that, you know, played in the, in bands, similar bands, shared bands with members of that band, and then just see them become what they are. And it's just so crazy because they just, you see them elevate to a new, new world. It's, it's a complete level up. It's not like, it's just so hard to associate them with who you knew them as because they've gone on and they've done these, these amazing things and it's this is a bigger conversation probably for another time but it's not that they aren't the same people but they can't be expected to be the same it's not like you can just like pick up your phone and and text them and say hey what up because they've got a gigantic show that they're preparing for tonight (laughs) it's just a completely different lifestyle but it's weird it's fun to see when they're growing It, it i'm sure it's different once they've like i guess reached that top like I, i've cheered on friends who have been on the voice and it didn't pan out for them but it's fun to watch i'm still waiting to to spot somebody random from my childhood like mm. I, I think that's it though i think i think at this point if it hasn't happened unless one of them becomes like an axe murderer later on in life or oh, something yeah. like that like <laughs> that's the only thing i could think of but i'm still waiting to see who shows up like I'm like, oh, I know that person. Like, oh, this person's a famous actor now. Like, I don't have, like, like I'm not, I don't think I'm going to have a Benicio Del Toro that I went to college with or something like that when mm-hmm. I'm 40, like, seeing who that happens. There's, like, there's definitely some people I went to college with that, like, pop up on my Twitter feed now that are getting bigger. Like, um, Chris, uh, shit, fuck, uh, plays, plays Gail. Um, you know, that, that character, like, the, the, the guy who plays the mother, Chris Fleming, Chris Fleming. I went to college with him and he's his definitely his his comedy career is is, is blossoming i think if, i mean it's he's been doing really hard work and excellent work for like 10 years now you know hmm. but um but he t- but his gale character took off hmm. 
I don't even think that and, I, like, I've so gone to school with anybody of note, like any kind of notoriety or fame. At least not in any circles that have, I'm familiar with. <laughs> at the same time, I guess, but you have famous alumni from your school. Uh, we have one, and he was yeah. just a business guy who did really well, and uh, he produced that that one Brad Pitt Nazi movie. Um, Quentin Tarantino? No, it's the other one. Valkyrie? Valkyrie, yeah. yeah. He, produ- he that, used like a minor Tom producer Cruise. on that, I think. Oh, was that Tom Cruise? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, Valkyrie is Tom Cruise. Fury was another World War II um, Brad Pitt flick. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's like the most notable guy that that came from my high school. But didn't a famous musician or somebody go to your... Oh, your high school. I was, I was talking about your college, but... yeah. Oh, my college. Nobody of note went to my high school. My college. Hawking or, or Akron? Akron. Akron, sure. I'm sure like a lot of notable people have gone. Oh, Rhea Butcher, the, didn't she? Didn't she go? Didn't yeah, they we were go? looking Sorry. at the list. I mean, there's like a, it's a pretty big school. It's it's like one of the bigger schools in Northeastern Ohio. But, uh, mm. but yeah, like locally, I, there hasn't been a whole lot of, uh, of notable people that I can, at least that I can think of. We had a, a, in Ritman where I grew up and went to elementary school, one of our guys became a very famous pogo ist a pogo person po- like like a pogo stick yeah yeah i don't know their name i just know that they did really well and i think may- maybe they were on conan or something but <laughs> i always have i always have the dream that i'm gonna be the one that someone's like oh there he is there's that guy from from oh wow there he is oh man it's not it too late such a guy. you could you could dis- you could just abandon old best friend and become the next stupid human trick person if you look back at my text messages from when i was on conan um some of my oldest text messages in my iphone which have carried over from backup to backup if you look at the oldest one it's like conversations with people i've never talked to again after that night but that night that premiered so many people reached out to me and gave me so many well wishes so many people from the salem music scene reached out to me there's one dude who was only, he just only was trying to network with me. He was like, Hey, I just want to let you know, like, I'm really interested in playing with you. Um, so if you need anything, just let, I was like, God, dude, stop being, stop it. Like that was, that was the only time it's ever happened to me. That That's a but weird, it, my, it has to be a weird feeling, right? Cause weird. it's like, if you were the, if you were actually big shit and, uh, yeah. that would, that would be annoying. Like it would, it'd be something that you disregard. Like, oh, that's kind of like that's in bad taste or, you know, not really the way you go about doing this, but you weren't just because you were like playing on Conan doesn't necessarily make you like big shit in the music industry. So it's even more cringy. Here's a, is a text from January 24th, 2012. It's the literally the last text in my entire phone. It goes, you look so sexy kid. Ha ha ha. Awesome performance. How much fun did you have? And I was like, it was great. And he goes, dude, so sick. You killed it. I wish it was longer, but you have some good screenshots of your mug. It's like, I, the only, and that's the only text message I have with Jerry, this guy, um, my old boss, um, my, um, old college classmate. Oh, there's my ex-girlfriend's text. One of the last ones in there. Let's go past that one. Um, just some dude who like helped us out in tour once. And yeah, it's just really funny to see those texts pop up and like, and Facebook messages too. That's the worst one. Cause they, they don't have your phone number, but they still want to see you and reach out to you and ask if they can play drums for you in the future. I'm like, I'm not important to this. You want to play drums? Paid, like, <laughs> yeah. You want to play drums for the xylophone player of this band that was on stage? Like enjoy. Like <laughs> I got nothing. I live in a shitty apartment in a, the shitty part of Brooklyn. Like it's not, hmm. it's not going to work for you in Boston, man. I just like, it's weird that the things that people grab onto, I do. Mm-hmm. So I, this is the last thing I'll say. I do have one recollection. Um, do you know, lady lamb? Uh, she went by lady lamb, the beekeeper for a while. Familiar with her at all? I have never Googled so much in an episode of podcast. I know this is, this is a long one. Um, Allie Spaltrow is her name. She, she's a great songwriter. I think she's from Maine. Um, but she plays under Lady Lamb. And I remember after, um, I stopped playing, after I was going more full steam into old best friend, I reached out to her at one point and was like, Hey, um, Hey, I heard you're playing a show in Brooklyn. Um, just in case you need an opener, I'd really love to open for you. (laughs) And she was like, 
ha ha, we're okay, thanks. <laughs> it was like, I knew exactly who I was being in that moment, and I thought of the people that texted me. But I wasn't like, I had not seen her on like a TV show and been like, oh, I should go reach out to her to try and network. It was like, oh, she has a tour stop in my hometown, my, my like where I live, and I'm trying to play music, and I'm trying to play in front of a bigger audience, so... I just threw I threw something out there and it just obviously did not work and it was very embarrassing but yeah. I had to try. Yeah. <laughs> now that's the hustle. Got to respect the hustle. Yeah. I don't respect the hustle. I mean, I feel I am I'm embarrassed by the hustle. I'm embarrassed by my hustle. But I get it when other people do it. I just it's just when you're reaching out to the xylophone player <laughs> of a band like which was me in that moment. I got nothing for you, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>